Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. We kick off 2022 at Startup Dads with another amazing startup mum. Ruth Hancock, CEO of Octopus Investments and a mum to a three and five-year-old. Ruth has had an eclectic career, including building Tandem, one of the UK's early challenger internet banks. She had her first child a year after beginning her startup journey too. In this episode, we cover work-life blend versus work-life balance, feedback loops and experimentation in startups and parenting and the power of consistency, and how to build transparency with vulnerability. As always, it's great to hear from you all. So do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. Alternatively, reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santarasanan and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. Welcome to our first post-Christmas Startup Dads episode. Or should I say this week, Startup Mums? I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Ruth Hancock to the show. Ruth, hi. Hello. How are you? How was your Christmas? It was wonderful, thank you. So nice to be able to spend it with family for a change. Yes, I'm always fascinated talking to very successful founder, CEO, parents, because Christmas is one of two times I see, depending on the age of the kids and the nature of the person. It's either a time when they spend loads of time catching up on work because everyone else is on holiday, or it's the time where they actually get to get some family time. And now, as my daughter's two now, this year was a proper family time. But how was it for you? Yeah, it was just the same. So my kids are three and five. Um, so my little girl was really excited about Christmas. She's the younger for the first time. She really got it this year. Um, and my little boy, it's probably the second time he was really excited about it. So I, frankly, if I'd wanted to catch up on work, it would have been completely impossible. So yes. <laughs> you've just got to surrender to it, which is wonderful. As you get a little bit older, you go through a kind of lull where Christmas just loses a little bit of its magic, right? Because you've got a little bit older and you don't have time. And then when you have kids again, it reignites that spark. It all comes back. It's so much fun spending Christmas Day building Lego. I mean, I haven't done that for 20 years, so it was great. That's one of the main reasons I've had kids, is to dress them up in novelty clothes (laughs) and to be able to buy amazing toys. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. Well, Ruth, look, let's jump in. I'd love to hear about your journey. Obviously, you've got lots of amazing parts to your journey, but I'd love to hear about the time that you became a startup mum. I've had quite an eclectic career, but probably in my mid-30s, met a couple of entrepreneurs who decided they wanted to start a bank, which is called Tandem. But when I met them, all they had was kind of a scrappy piece of paper and a great idea, uh, which is the way most startups start. So I was a finance director at a big company at the time, but I've always much preferred working with smaller companies. So just sort of fell in love with this idea that we could do something pretty audacious. There aren't many people who manage start banks. I think at that point in the UK, only Metro had got a new banking license in the last hundred years. We were the second. And so it sort of felt that nice level of impossible that I couldn't resist. I thought if I look back in 10 years and I said, no, I'd really kick myself But equally, I was 35 and I knew I wanted to have kids soon. That was probably the biggest pause for thought I had. And do I quit this very sensible finance director role and go into something that, you know, may go bust tomorrow? And actually, if I do go and do the startup, how do I balance that? Do I, you know, do I take maternity leave? Do I not, et cetera, et cetera. So definitely a big consideration going in. And then I think we'd been going about a year when I was pregnant with my first 
And and then you sort of start thinking about it all again. You think, oh, what's going to happen when I disappear? And I ended up stepping slightly aside for four months and then going back. But actually, my husband took four months off as well. And that was one of the big learnings for me that I'd both taking time off and then both going back at the same time definitely created some great balance for us. And yeah, then went back and got got straight into it. One of my one of the interesting observations I had actually, particularly in startup land, is we had a mixture of American and, and UK backers. And all of the UK backers were like, oh, four months, that's quite short. All of the Americans were like, four months, that is forever. And it's yeah. a really fascinating cultural divide into how people how people thought about that amount of time off. It is really fascinating. And, you know, one of the things I often think about in the UK, because I think it's changing a little bit now. You probably have more insights than I do from your job. We get a bit of a bad press, depending on which way you look at it. We get either very good press or very bad press when it comes to kind of building businesses for the amount of time that we take off in the UK. And we look in America. And I remember I lived in Canada for a couple of years and I went over there. And like you say, it was two weeks holiday and that's all you got for the year. If you wanted to have maternity leave, the Canadians were very proud of having a more UK-like maternity leave policy. When in my mind, I was like, you mean you're proud of not having something that's not absolutely diabolically terrible? But it's one of those things. I think it's a very interesting mechanism of framing what you need versus what you want, right? Because you took four months off. And as a mummy, I imagine that must have felt short or did it feel short? I don't know. Maybe we can talk about that. Yeah. And I think it felt short to others and less to me. So it was, mm. and, and I think a lot of people in startups feel like this, is you almost feel like you're juggling two babies at once. So your startup feels like a baby. You you put your heart and soul into it and you feel like it needs you. And then you've got a real baby that really needs you. And I remember reading a piece of research just before I went back to work. And I don't know whether this is true of men as well, but it was written about women, which is as a woman, if you take a long time off, people will think a bit less of you because you're not focusing on your career. And if you take a short time off, people will think a bit less of you because you're not focusing on your child. And it was a really useful thing for me because the basic conclusion is people will sort of judge you whatever you do. So the thing you mustn't do is judge yourself because there's absolutely no right answer. And once you make your peace with the fact that there's no right answer, actually you can kind of feel your way through it. And and I did what I think a lot of people do, which so went back four days a week and had Fridays at home and that created a bit of balance and then ramped back up. And then when I had my second child, I had a bit longer off between jobs. I think you feel your way, but you've just got to keep telling yourself there is there is not a right answer here, whether you're American or British or or anything in between. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. The question I had for you, because I've struggled with this personally, I'm determined to not fall into the stereotypical startup dad that isn't there for my daughter. You know, I've set myself the goal that I have two hours every night of EV time. And that's sacred, it's sacrosanct. Uh, and we'll talk about personal readmes earlier because I was accidentally writing my own personal readme. I realised that now. Uh, and that was one of the things that was in that document saying that this time is not a compromise. I have to have that with Evie every day. And I can work afterwards and I can work super early, but that time, that's with her. I feel like the pandemic's made that much more acceptable. The kind of flip side of that, though, is, as you say, with a work-life blend, sometimes that works really well. And sometimes I have personally struggled really with the kind of balancing presence and balancing being there and doing kind of 50-50, which is often zero-zero. So how have you made that work? How has that unwound for you? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the biggest bit of feedback I often give myself is just put your phone away. Like I almost bought a Faraday cage, which is one of those signal blockers. And I was going to insist that phones go in there 
you know, between the hours of five and seven, because it's so easy to flip into. I mean, just to give a small example, we've started getting a paper newspaper delivered at the weekend so that I'm not reading the paper on my phone. So my kids aren't constantly looking at me reading my phone. And my boy, who's five, will sometimes say to me, mummy, it's not screen time now. So I blimey, he's saying that, what's going on? So I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the way I do it is I'm definitely a routine person. I try and finish my day of meetings at five. And like you, five to seven is a bit of exercise. So I try and do half an hour of exercise, um, which if I'm in the office is running back. And if it's, if I'm at home, it's going out for a run. And then it's putting the kids in the bath, having a chat with them before bedtime, reading them a story, and then coming back to my desk. And I try and keep that whether I'm at home or not. My phone stays upstairs. I don't answer emails. I think the thing that suffers, interestingly, the way I think about it in my head is kids first, work second, everything else third. I don't know how you feel, but the thing that you miss is anything about you. So I, you know, friends socializing all come after those two things. And I think that's the trade-off from having a hectic job rather than necessarily a kid trade-off. And my friends with older kids say that changes over time, but definitely that's how it feels at the moment. It's funny you say that. All the successful people that I've talked to have a mantra like that approximates to something like this. And, you know, one of the ones that we have at HX is health, family, HX, in that order, right? And we mm. say, you know, the health thing is like put your own oxygen mask on first. And then family, family has to come next and then HX third. And I'm also really clear when people join HX that it's not health, family, your cricket, binge drinking, nightclubs, and then HX. If you're going to join a high growth, ambitious business like ours, we expect you to do that. And I think it ties in with something you were just saying earlier about the passion side of things. And we try to select people that work at our company, whether they've got kids or not, for whom actually the passion means that putting HX third isn't hard. It's not that they have to put it first, but they can put it third and feel good about it. They feel good in themselves. That is exactly it. And it's important for all parents, I think, but you could argue it's even more important for female role models. Is my kids seeing me working and enjoying my job, I think is really important. So I don't try and hide it from them. I talk about it. I will say I'm going to work now you need to leave me alone. It's not something I try and suggest doesn't happen because I think that's a really important thing for them to recognize that this this is this is life. Yeah. But to do one thing at a time, that's the thing that I think we all struggle with. Yeah. Yes. Well, look, I've got so many questions on the mum side. I want to ask you one more before we jump onto the startup business side. One thing that I've realized recently though is that my life is broadly a series of new routines that change every month, particularly early in Evie's life, where every month she's a bit like an early stage startup. She's a new business every month. As your kids have grown, at the same time as you're kind of driving the car, you have to kind of work out how to modify it so that it stays on the track. I think almost there's no better training than being in a startup because it's sort of about a decision a positive decision, following that decision, and then changing it as soon as it's no longer the right decision, which to me is the only way to run a startup because you're never going to get the answer right. You're going to write a one-year budget and it's going to be wrong two months later. And bringing up kids is exactly the same. So, you know, I'm somewhere between routine and, and a bit of a control freak, which I know many of us are. And so to me, the the important thing is that I feel like I have a semblance of control. And by that, I don't mean dictation, but I, you know, I kind of know how the pieces fit together at any point in time, but you're constantly rebuilding that mental model. And I think what's important from the kids' perspective is that 
to them that feels to some extent consistent. So I think consistency is more important than than an absolutely identical routine. They have to know that the rules stay the same, that the values stay the same, that your presence stays the same. But that doesn't mean that every day is going to be the same. Bedtimes aren't going to shift around and that this is going to move a bit and stories are going to be done together or separately. And all these little things that become quite ingrained in your family routine, they will shift around. But the ways of making decisions and the way you communicate those decisions and the way you're consistent about them, I think has to stay the same. We've just introduced pocket money for the first time, which is a really interesting journey because it allows, it creates a decision point. So every Sunday we have a conversation about how much pocket money they should get. And there's a set of things they're expected to do and a set of things that if they haven't done, pocket money might get deducted. And it's an interesting new routine for us that allows us to bring behavior to a point in the week where we talk about it and set some new goals for the following week that, you know, three months ago we didn't do. We handled that that challenge in a slightly different way. But the way we make those decisions is the same as pre-pocket money. So I don't think the kids feel a different set of rules, if that makes sense. That's super cool. That's fascinating. That's a really good idea. And like you say, that point of bringing all the things, having a focal point around which you can talk about things is really powerful. It's the same in business, right? It's not the case that if you see something great or something not so great happen at a point in time, you don't necessarily want to discuss it right at that point. And having the framework where you can bring those things together is very, very powerful. Yeah. And there's so many parallels to businesses because, you know, if you have the same rituals in your business forevermore, people inevitably get bored of them. You have to change them now and again, but the values of your business should remain the same and the celebration of successes, but you have to switch it up occasionally. And I think the same is true of kids, not only because they're changing in age, but just because you switch something and suddenly it regains its impact that it might have lost. Yes. Yes, for sure. For sure. Well, look, I would love to jump into the startup slash business side of the conversation now. I had an absolutely awesome time learning about you, particularly because of the way your website is structured, actually. And I feel like, as I was saying to you, when we were in the green room, I spent a reasonable amount of time just copying lots of hacks from your website into HX's operating manual. But I'd love to talk to you about two topics in particular. So the first one is customer centricity. So you joined Octopus uh, as chief customer officer from what I've said, and before you became CEO. And that's a really unusual transition, I think, particularly at an investment firm, actually. And I think one thing that really sticks out to me is that when I first saw that, it looked really unusual. And then I read more about Octopus, and it seemed like the most obvious thing in the world. Now, one thing I can't recognize, though, because I only learned about you recently, is whether that was you or whether that was Octopus. And I'd love to just hear a little bit about your journey and how that kind of came about. And I suppose one thing I'm really interested to know is, I suppose, the superpowers it gave you and maybe some of the challenges you faced coming in from the officer into the CEO position. Yeah, great question. So for any of you that don't know Octopus, we're an investment firm that that does something a little bit unusually in the investment world. So we try and help retail investors, investors like you and me, invest into opportunities they wouldn't normally get to see. So whether that's small venture stage companies, those we invest into an awful lot of startups, whether it's private trading companies, and um, we're increasingly helping institutions do the same thing. We also have a sister company called Octopus Energy that a lot more people have heard of, even though it's much younger than the investments business that provides retail energy. But both companies are built on the same foundation, which is trying to treat customers and communicate with customers in a way that's meaningfully different from the industries they operate in. So 
financial services and energy are the least trusted industries by consumers. And the founders of Octopus, it's been around for 20 years, really set out to change that in everything they operate in. So as you say, everything you read about Octopus, whether it's about investments, whether it's about energy, whether it's about some of the other companies we have in the group, is really about treating customers as you would want to be treated. So as you say, the transition is more obvious at a place like Octopus, still not completely obvious. My background is quite mixed. I'm a scientist by education. I've been a finance director. I've been an editor. I've worked in Africa. I've been a consultant. So, and I think this is again true of lots of people who love startups, is I'm a generalist above all else. And I see every business challenge in front of me as a really interesting problem to be solved rather than coming at it with any particular job title or discipline. So probably whatever my job title says, I've always kind of seen myself as a person to solve the problem. I've always shown up as a as a general manager because I find it fundamentally more interesting. So I didn't actually find the transition that different because I think even in a chief customer officer role, I'm trying to think about the emotion of the customer journey, the logic of the customer journey, how tech enables that and actually what the commercial outcome is. And that's sort of fundamentally what a CEO does as well. And I think that it's a bit like product roles, actually, which is the other great example of how you marry kind of commercial tech customer. I think those, I hope, will actually be some of the best CEOs of the future, because I think it's one of those disciplines where logic and emotion come together in a really compelling way that they don't in many other roles. And I think a chief customer officer is is a bit the same, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting insight. Particularly in the tech world, lots of people talk about the job of their CEO at an early stage in particular is to be the chief product officer. And actually, you're right, you know, in a business like Octopus and lots of other businesses, you could argue that the job of the CEO is to be the chief customer officer. So, you know, you had that priming anyway. No, I completely agree. And I think it's helped by the fact that Octopus is a private company and intends to remain a private company sort of forevermore, which allows you to think really long term and think really sharply about the customer outcome rather than your next quarter's results or your next year's results. So I think that ownership structure allows the freedom for us to be incredibly customer-centric in a way that if you have a lot of external investment, if you're shooting for an IPO, if you're a public company, is a lot, lot harder to do. So I I feel very lucky when I get to work in the morning that I get that freedom to think really long term and to think, what's the decision we make to, for our customers to love us five years from now? And I'm allowed by our ownership structure for that to be the guiding principle. Yeah. Having worked at a public company early in my career and having seen how much just the job of the CEO was to work out the analyst perception and to run around the analyst cycles was fascinating to me. And now I'm in charge of a company. I totally understand, as you say, the power of staying private and actually how you can think over a much longer time horizon that's ultimately, you know, is free of noise or not free of noise, but has hopefully a higher signal to noise ratio. Yeah. And it gives you an an amazing competitive advantage if you think about it properly, because you can make decisions that others wouldn't because you're making a long-term decision and it makes you very competitive against people who are forced, for want of a better word, to take one or two year time horizon decisions. And, you know, that's the way of the world. Most businesses work on that time cycle. It's not a criticism, but it's an opportunity if you don't have to. Yes, absolutely. I trained as an actuary before I set up HX. And one of the things you learn is about the markets. And they talk about the most successful people who outperform the markets are two things, 
different and right. <laughs> it's one of those things that's really important. It's great to be different, but you need to be right. But it's also, it's one thing being right, but if you're the same right as everyone else, then it's hard to outperform. Exactly. No, exactly. And you have to figure out what your secret sauce is. And it, as in anything, there's no right answer, but you need to be pretty sure what you think the one for you is. For sure. One of the things I've realized as HX has grown is when startups are very small, I think being customer centric comes very naturally. And by definition, you set up a business to solve often a problem, right? That you've either felt yourself or that you know needs to be solved. And I've seen that you have to work very hard as your company grows to make sure that it stays customer centric. Because actually, as companies become larger, as they become more successful, their kind of funding levels go up, you actually have the opportunity, you can get away within the short term being less customer centric. How have you built the tools and metrics that you've created to reinforce that culture where actually people stay customer centric as their business tries to grow? Yeah. And I probably have a slightly unusual answer to this one, which is I think if you have an employee culture that is really strong, I think your customers feel it almost without you having to do anything too explicit. So. So my belief is you, I want everyone to come to work feeling excited, feeling like they're well looked after, feeling like we value them, feeling like they will have more opportunities at Octopus than they will elsewhere. And what I find that translates into is people building a product that they want to feel really proud of, of people picking up the phone and speaking with a smile on their face. And when someone calls up with a problem, they get the answer to that problem before they close that ticket rather than thinking, can I get away with it? Because they want the company to succeed. You know, most of our employees, even though we're a, we're a much bigger company now, about 80% of our employees are shareholders. They feel very, very bought in. So that ownership of the company translates, I think, into care for the customer quite naturally. I think then you can layer a bunch of things over the top that just reinforce that. I'm a big believer in huge amounts of recognition and employee recognition. But in doing that, you can recognize brilliant customer treatment and stories. And I've learned, I don't know whether you identify with this as a former actuary, but you know, I'm a fairly logical person. I'm a scientist by education. My natural instinct is to say, you know, here's our results. Aren't we doing brilliantly? Every time I stand up and do a presentation, I have to think, you know, only half the world thinks like me. The other half of the world actually think in, in stories. And I try very hard to make sure, particularly when we're talking about our customers, that we're talking about both. We're talking about, you know, this is how many customers we have. This is our attention. But then this is the delight we created. This is the thing that we sent to customer X and how they felt about it and the letter they wrote to us. And you've got to make sure you balance the two because different people across your company will be engaged by a different thing. For sure. No, I love that. I read a really good book recently because as HX, we're not remotely the scale of a company like Octopus, but you know, we've grown from 20 people to 50 in the last year or so. And for us, that's been a huge transition. One of the things I've realized is making my message as CEO stick is just so important. And there's a really great book called Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. And it's just about putting a message that people will remember. And it talked exactly about what you were just saying about stories, because a very small proportion, I think, of the world actually just wants to be given facts and figures and unpack them into a story themselves. And I'm definitely one of those people, right? I love the data. I'm hugely data-driven. But actually, loads of people aren't. And building the story and reading the narrative is so important. And yeah, I really love that. I love your joining the dots of ownership and recognition, kind of building that kernel around customer centricity. And that's very, very powerful. 
Yeah, and it requires a lot of work, particularly as you're growing quickly. And if I reflect on my startup days at Tandem, you know, going as you have over the past year from 20 to 50, really hard because how you constantly reinforce that culture almost takes a lot of personal energy. And I think one of the one of the toughest things about being a CEO and a parent is your energy has to be limitless <laughs> because really it, it's a little bit uh, a war of attrition. You succeed if you keep going in both spheres of your life. But that takes a lot of emotional energy to really reinforce that culture time and time again. And I think that's where rituals, repeating yourself, you know, if I've written a new mission statement and I haven't said it 50 times, I know people haven't heard it. You repeat something till you yourself are bored and then most other people will have actually heard it. But all of these tricks as a CEO, you kind of well, you learn the hard way, but they're very important. They certainly are. They certainly are. As you say, that it certainly does feel like a war of attrition at some point. And I, after this, I'll go and feed my daughter. And that definitely feels like a war of attrition. <laughs> She's got a, a lot more energy and uh, patience than I have. Exactly. At that point in the day where they've just been fed and they're running around and you're at your lowest. <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> exactly. I saw something, as I alluded to earlier on the Octopus website, which I absolutely loved. The team member read me system that you have, which is people at Octopus share personal README files to help build closer working relationships. README files help our people explain how they like to work, what motivates them, and the values and behaviors they expect from others. So really funnily enough, I become more aware of is that I forget sometimes I'm CEO. We're a startup, right? So being a CEO isn't the same as being a CEO of a multi-layered large corporate. But actually, I wanted to make sure that I could make them feel comfortable. It's very brave that you share this with the public. It can be quite a vulnerable thing, writing things about yourself now. And I found that actually as I did it. How have you managed to build that kind of culture of openness? I suppose you're leading from the front and when you do this. Yeah, and I think you almost have to take deep breath and do it. So I'd be completely honest, it's not something that came naturally to me. I think I probably went through the first 10 years of my career thinking the job of anyone in the workplace was to show up as if you weren't making any mistakes and worry about it in the background. And I think in the last 10 years of my career, I've almost completely rebuilt that and realized a couple of things. Firstly, that no one expects perfection. And I think so long as you're honest about your mistakes and you're determined to fix them or make different decisions, then that's just what being human is about. And then if you take that to the next level, I've realized that you build much better relationships with people if you're able to show a bit of vulnerability. So I remember getting a bit of feedback probably five or six years ago that one of my direct reports described me as a perfect sphere that they couldn't figure out how to break into. And I think they almost meant it as a compliment. They were like, you know, you show up kind of looking really like you know what you're doing. But there was a subtle subtext there, which is if I don't know how to break into you, how vulnerable do I feel in front of you? Am I going to be completely open? Am I going to be sort of my true self? And so I've made a really concerted effort with the help of our old head of people who's now head of culture, who's a brilliant coach, who has effectively challenged me to be more vulnerable on the basis that you you are a better leader if people understand you as a person, if people understand that perfection isn't the goal, that you learn from mistakes, that you that the more you're open about it, actually, the more people in your organization will put up their hand when they've done something wrong rather than try and hide it. Um, and they'll go, oh, I did this. I've learned from it. I'm going to do this differently next time. And so things like the README are a, 
a manifestation of that. And they almost make me and some of the other leaders, they force that vulnerability, which I think builds a better culture. But I'd be lying if I said we didn't all have to take a deep breath to do it. And that's okay, I think, but you've almost got to force yourself to be open because it creates permission for everyone else, which you really see across the organization. We have a big focus on feedback and it is not unusual for someone to end a meeting and say, can I just give you some quick feedback? I've never worked anywhere where that's the case. But every time you get feedback, you're like, oh, it's going to be better next time. And suddenly it doesn't feel personal anymore. It feels like someone's trying to help you, but it takes a while for people to work that muscle and get used to it. Yeah, that's absolutely awesome. Brilliant. Thank you. So Ruth, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass into your children? I have learned business is predominantly about people. 20 years ago, I said it was predominantly about having the right answer. It's not. It's predominantly about people, how you motivate them, how you're straight with them. And I think where I've probably developed most as a colleague, as a leader, is having a set of values and a sense of integrity that I just won't change. So I won't be political. I won't say things about people. When you live by all of that, suddenly everything else falls into place because great people stay at your organization and they feel passionate about your mission and everything else follows from that. So to me, entrepreneurship is getting a great set of people to work brilliantly together. The ideas, everything else fall into place once you have that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I look back on Siege Stage Amrit and his thoughts on how much of HX's success would be about the product. Don't get me wrong, you can't succeed without a product. But again, it's the kind of tiny little kernel around which you're going to build a very significant business. And I certainly see my job now is almost like that's the most important thing I can do is to galvanize the team and the people together to make it happen. So that's something that resonates incredibly strongly with me too. Before we go, we wrap up the show with our usual segment, Startup Shoutouts, where we shine a light on some organizations or people in the startup uh, ecosystem that we admire. Startup Shoutouts. So who's your Startup Shoutout? Oh, so I'm cheating a little bit by naming something within our group, but it is a startup. So um, a company called Octopus Money Coach that became part of the group about nine months ago. And what they do is provide financial coaching to employees to help them get a financial plan in place. So if you talk to most people about money, they'll say, oh, it makes me feel stupid. I always get it wrong. I don't know where to turn for help. And they might also say, you know, I don't really get financial advice and it's a bit expensive for me. What Money Coach does is provide affordable one-to-one coaching for anyone. So if your employer takes part, then you as an employee can book a session. You can talk to a coach. They'll help you get your finances in order. And most people come out of it not necessarily saying, okay, I feel richer. They say, I feel less stressed. I feel happier. I feel like I've got stuff in place. And I think particularly for parents, it can be a huge weight off people's minds, just that hour-long session. So um, it's a great business that I feel very proud of got as part of the group. That's super cool. And like all excellent CEOs, you've done some excellent sales development work <laughs> there because I'm super interested in that paycheck. So you can tell your sales team you've generated a warm intro, I think is the phrase that they call it, isn't it? Amazing. I'll send them <laughs> your way. Excellent. Well, Ruth, Thank look, you. I really enjoyed that. That really was a really special episode. Thank you so much for coming on the show and kicking off the first startup moment of 2022. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. Bye. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. 
So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 